0: Hello, welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of APRA and the National Boards. I'm Tash Miles. And I'm Susan Bigger. And this week we're talking mandatory notifications, which are when health practitioners, employers and health education providers are required by our law to report what we call notifiable conduct by making a mandatory notification.
1: And this is really timely because a year ago, in early 2019, um, the legislation... There was a decision for the legislation to change and it is now, as of the 1st of March 2020, becoming law. I caught up this week with two very interesting doctors and then I spoke to a psychologist. Let's
2: listen to these conversations.
1: I have um, two guests with me.
2: I'm Caroline Johnson. I'm a GP from Metropolitan Melbourne and I also work at the University teaching medical students and I'm involved in training of
3: GP registrars. My name is Andrew Tagg, I'm an emergency physician in the west of Melbourne and I spend my time as mentor for the interns at our hospital.
1: Are there circumstances where practitioners actually do pose a risk to the public that make these mandatory notifications
2: um, important? Well, of course of course there are and I think that's why it's important to have it. But to me I, as, a, as a GP I think of it very much along the same lines as my duty to report when I'm concerned about children being risk of harm. You know, This is about making sure that people who are vulnerable are safe, and there are situations, um, and I think these are quite well outlined in the guide, where um, it's, very, um, it's very hard for the, for the health professional in question to necessarily recognise the impact that they're having and therefore um, take the appropriate steps. And so sometimes a colleague needs to do that, and I see that's not just protecting the public, but it's also protecting your colleague from you know, a future disaster. Um, because obviously if um, someone's impaired and working and causes harm, then the consequences are terrible for the public, but also for that, that practitioner's future career.
1: Andy, have you ever come across practitioners who you thought were posing a risk to the public?
3: I personally never have. They only seem to come up in exam questions rather than in, in real life. And I think what, what I'm more faced with is um, healthcare practitioners of all sort of craft breeds. Coming to me, concerned that they may um, be re- have a notification made against them, um, but not posing a risk to the public. And so, but because they're so concerned, they don't want to go and seek help. And I think that's a really important message that often the, the fear of mandatory reporting, if it stops people getting the help they need, it, it can lead to them becoming an impaired practitioner.
1: Caroline, could you comment on this raised threshold for treating practitioners?
3: For me
2: personally, I thought the bar was pretty high before. So even before this new legislation, I've had many conversations with colleagues where I say, look, the bar is pretty high. I think the new wording has helped that and I encourage people to read the new wording. On the other hand, I think in some ways the new wording has also brought extra complexity to... Like when you sit down and read the guide, there's a bit of wordsmithing that's happening, like the difference between place the public at substantial risk of harm versus place the public at risk of substantial harm. Because the words sometimes might confuse people, you really do need to go to the flowcharts that have been provided at the time that you're trying to make the decision and work through it in a systematic way. Um, and there is guidance there, and there are people you can talk to if you want more guidance.
1: I, I wonder, Caroline, if you've had practitioners who are patients or maybe colleagues um, expressing fear about you maybe needing to make a notification
2: about them. Yeah, look, um, I, I've certainly had conversations, not so much with um, health professionals seeking help because I think the fact that they're there seeking help means they've already kind of gotten over that sort of psychological barrier of coming in and asking for help. Um, but I always proactively raise it when I'm treating health professionals in a situation where I think they might be concerned because I think you know it's better just to put it on the table and make it really clear that my interpretation of the guide is that the bar for mandatory notification is very high and that they need to understand that I'm there to help make sure we never get to the point where they'll need mandatory notification. Um, I certainly have many more colleagues outside of my um, consulting room who want to talk about this issue and worry about it. And I do think that it's good that the new wording in the guide are trying to make that a little bit clearer. So what do
1: you think about when you have a practitioner that you're treating and you have concerns that they may actually warrant a mandatory notification.
2: For me, because this, it's a, it's a relatively rare event where I would actually have to think, "Gee, is this person, you know, require a mandatory notification?" But in that situation, I would look at the guide, and the guide has lovely tables and flowcharts. Some of the wording is a bit um, hard to kind of work out because it sounds very similar. Um, and that's part of the problem of trying to create a document that's interpreting the law. I've found that's always been an issue, not just in this area. But when you sit down and look at the tables and you say, "Okay, is this person really putting the public at substantial risk of harm, which is the wording, for example, under um, treating someone who's got an impairment? Um, And I think once you start putting it in those words and then... Is the person you know working in isolation? Are they got, have they got a team around them? Do they have access to supervision? are they accessing appropriate care? How severe are their symptoms? Once you start asking yourself those questions, it really does become pretty apparent that way and above the vast majority of people that you might be be seeing or health conditions wouldn't meet that bar. Um, so you know it, it is something though I think you have to refer to at the time that you're dealing with the case so that you don't kind of jump to conclusions because that is my concern and I've certainly heard anecdotes of doctors jumping to conclusions thinking they need to mandatory notify someone without actually thinking it through. And even if you read the guide and you're still confused, of course it's completely appropriate that you consult a trusted colleague or your MDO or you can, of course, even call APRA seeking, they, they might not tell you whether it meets the threshold but they can certainly talk you through some of the wording in the guide to help you make that decision.
1: Because of course it's 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 really important to remember that pract- health practitioners themselves do need to seek help.
2: The first thing to say is that doctors are human beings and they get sick just the same as everyone else. And we look at the example that I have a strong interest in which is mental health. We know from the National Mental Health Survey that one in five Australians in any 12 month period will experience symptoms that would, that would cross a diagnostic threshold. And we know that from that survey in in their lifetime, 45% of us will cross a diagnostic threshold for either anxiety or depression. So it's pretty important for doctors to realise that one in five, but probably more like one in two in our ranks in their lifetime, will have what, what might be formally diagnosed as a mental illness. Now clearly we can't afford to have that many doctors not working because they're ill, and that's because having an illness, even one that might seem serious, like depression or anxiety, is not the same as being unable to practice medicine.
1: Andy, do you have any comment to make here, either from your own experience or from colleagues you've spoken to about seeking help for their own health conditions?
3: I think when I suffered from major depression and ended up being hospitalized, throughout that time period I hadn't spoken to my colleagues about my own uh, mental illness and they were none the wiser, it certainly didn't impair my ability to do my job, and a lot of doctors go a lot of long way to make sure that their depression or anxiety doesn't impact on their job anyway, and I think i will be much more concerned that if I'd got to the point where I had very little insight into what's going on, or was affected, affected by any medication I was taking and I had no insight into that and continued to practice, uh, that may reach the threshold for mandatory reporting, but I think... Actually, seeking help before you get to that stage is so much more important. And that fear that someone is going to say, Oh, no, you can't. If you go into work when you've got a an episode of depression, you might be reported, really can force people to use other coping strategies, turning to things like drugs or alcohol, and not seeking appropriate medical help. Even when I, after a period of hospitalization, during that time, i didn't or i wasn't concerned about being reported because i know i wasn't a danger to the public but i'm not even dealing with the public um and that's the story i share with young doctors who come to see me at the moment who are concerned and they have um mental health challenges they're, again they're often they're seeking help and they're wondering okay am i going to get a mandatory notification put in again and I said, the threshold is so high. You're doing something about your illness. Then I think if, if you, and again, I talk them through that same decision-making process that APRA might take them through. And often they come to the realization that there is no way that they are a danger to a substantial danger to the public. And that actually is a very reassuring part of their healing process.
1: Andy, I wonder if we can continue down that down that same direction to to think about what do you hope might change in terms of culture or practice as a result of this legislation?
3: I really hope there are two things that might change. I think, first of all, I'd I'd like to think that practitioners who have mental health concerns will feel free to seek help either via their own GPs or via their doctor's health programs or their employee assistance programs without fear of mandatory reporting. But perhaps even more importantly, I'd like to think that their colleagues will feel more able to support um, support them rather than feel they need to be standing in judgment of someone who needs help for their own mental health problems. I think one of the challenges at the moment is getting that the idea out that if you're a supervisor of a trainee, for instance, who openly admits they have depression and they need to be a psychologist or a therapist, that you must rush and report them because they have mental health concerns, and I think getting that information to the sort of the general supervisors would be is a wonderful thing that needs to happen, and at the moment that that's one of the voices that we're not really hearing. We're hearing from the doctors who are in distress, we're hearing from doctors like Caroline who treat them, but we're not really understanding what the average general practitioner, or the average supervisor in the hospital environment understands the mandatory reporting. And I think hopefully the clarity around the legislation should make things a lot easier for them.
1: Caroline, can I ask you if you hear health practitioners having worries about any consequences for them possibly if they don't raise a mandatory notification?
2: Well, i certainly had doctors ask me things like... um, will my name be on the website if I report someone? You know, will it be known? And APRA does have quite clear advice about the option to make anonymous notifications and, and the consequences of that. So I think people do worry about that. Like, they don't want to be found out as dobbing in a colleague. Um, I think there are there is the other issue, which is the subject of another day, about concern about vexatious complaints. Um, And I think people worry that they might be seen to be vexatious or they might get criticised. But all those problems really come down to this thing of seeing it as a legalistic sort of process, which of course it is from the point of view of the law. But as health professionals it should be more about getting the best outcome for the health professional needing help but also for the community. And I think if you frame it in in those minds that way in your head, You can usually come to a pretty sensible decision it's not always easy to have the conversation but it's usually a conversation I must say I find most of the time people go yeah I can recognize that person really wasn't safe it wasn't safe for the public for that person to be working or um, that person really was quite safe they just needed a little bit more support and and, and that's been achieved and well done Um, Mm. that would be my view in the main. Mm. So Caroline one group we
1: haven't talked about but I think that you have some experience working with is is students, can you speak about what the obligations are or how mandatory notifications relate to students?
2: Yes, yeah, so certainly um, the vast majority of issues I see with students are handled by the education provider. You know, The, bar, the threshold for students only implies to then practising with an impairment. It doesn't apply to the issues of um, sexual misconduct and the other things. So it's just the one area. And the flowchart in the guidelines is quite helpful because it says... One, are you concerned that the student is practising with an impairment? But then the next level is, you know, do you have a reasonable belief that they're undertaking clinical training with an impairment, and then do you have a reasonable belief that it's placing the public at risk of harm? And that, to me, that, that reasonable belief about placing the public at risk of harm, there's very few situations I've encountered where a student gets to that point. I've certainly encountered students who might be impaired or have a health condition that might affect their ability to train, but it rarely will get to the point where it's placing the public at risk of harm. Um, And so therefore it gives the education provider an opportunity to intervene and make sure that the student's getting the help before they get to a point where they will be in a situation where the public could be at risk. I think it's still really important that people um, provide support and, and offer some kind of intervention before we get to that point but certainly much less likely that um, AHPRA would need to get involved.
1: I wonder when you discuss with uh, young health professionals uh, mandatory notifications, what are some of the issues
2: or questions that they raise? Well, one interesting one that does come up quite often is um, particularly around September when the registration notice comes out. Some doctors who have already contacted me about health issues say, well, I feel I have to tick the box that says, have I um, experienced an impairment that's affected my ability to practice? So because they have had to take time off because of their impairment, or maybe they've had to adjust their work practices because of the impairment, Um, and then they feel that if they don't tick that box, they might be at risk of mandatory notification because somehow someone else will say, well, you clearly lack insight. Um, And my response to them is really, look, um, it's good that you have insight, but it might be an issue and that you're thinking about whether your impairment is impacting, but if you're getting help for it and you're not practicing while impaired and you're not putting patients at risk, then that's not a box you really have to tick. That box is there if you want to tell APRA that you're not fit to practice. Um, and in, in my view, because of the work that you've done, I, I certainly don't think you've met, met any um, requirement to notify at this stage.
1: Well, I just want to th- I want to thank you both for your time today and your insights into this
0: really important for, uh, issue. Thank
3: you. You're welcome.
0: We're joined by Kay Frankham. Kay, would you like to introduce yourself?
4: Yes, um, I'm a clinical and counselling psychologist. Uh, I've been practicing for
0: over thirty years,
4: and I've done a lot of treatment of health professionals.
0: How would you say mandatory notifications are seen by you and your colleagues? In the, in the kind of broader health system?
4: I think there's a sense of shame if we have to seek help for our health problems. And often we can be far more critical of ourselves than we would ever be of our own patients or clients. Um, when someone goes to get help, uh, there's often a difficulty of asking for something that you need for yourself personally. And I think amongst uh, the profession there's been an attitude of don't ask and don't tell. Right. And that mentality really needs to go. Uh, It means that people are not getting help when they need it and that there's been a misunderstanding about mandatory notifications um, and a difficulty with really understanding that impairment might lead, or concerns about impairment might lead to a notification, but there's a lot of steps before any health professional who was helping another health professional would take uh, that um, next step to go to a mandatory notification.
0: And as a result practitioners who maybe feel like they uh, might have an impairment they might be fearful about talking to someone like you um, or another health practitioner because they're worried about being the subject of a mandatory notification. So with the changes to the legislation what do you hope to see will change in terms of how you practice and how your colleagues practice and the health system more broadly?
4: Well, I think the main thing we're trying to get people to do is really seek help at an early stage. You know, early intervention is way better than a mandatory notification because by the time the person sought help, they're really not able to practice safely. So, you know, for example, um, you know, I'll give an example from my experience of a psychologist who was working, uh, who came to see me, and this person was working across multiple private practice locations. Uh, was seeing too many patients per day, was becoming quite disorganised and was behind in her compliance with note-taking, um, letters and so forth, and was not really able to say no to patients and was getting quite burnt out and felt that she had to create a serv- you know, provide a service to these patients and there was a sort of need to rescue people. And um, this person, I think, was on the verge of uh potentially um what well, she probably was suffering from a depressive illness um we talked through the problems she'd already obviously come for help she reduced her schedule the number of locations she was working she streamlined her administration she got started using digital methods of doing so and she was able to speak about her behavior from a personal point of view and when it had some therapy also about her personal difficulties and how she got herself into this state in the first place and then worked with me about how to practice more confidently and safely over time. But um, she was convinced she would be deregistered if anyone found out the extent of her problems.
0: As a treating health practitioner, somebody who has patients and clients who are health practitioners, do you have an example of a time when you had to um, think quite deeply about whether it was a mandatory notification and what was that like?
4: Yes, uh, so um, I ha- I was treating a, a GP um, at one time uh, who came to me um, initially saying, I've got a work stress problem um, that I need your help with. And as we started to unpack it, it was clear that, that they had a, a depressive illness themselves and uh, were also not really coping, that they'd been promoted in, in, in the system they were working in and they were not really coping with the... Um, increase in responsibilities. So part of it for me was really about working out what's a safe way in which we can start to put in place things that would actually help to see, is this person um, actually impaired in their practice and how can we sort of really address the issues of their behaviour and their um, conduct and their competence in such a way that actually tests, is this um, the result of... This whole situation, getting on top of them, or is it something that has some more uh, substantive um, aspects to it? So, um, uh, so I got this person to go and speak to uh, a mentor uh, within the agency that they were working in, who in turn spoke with me. We spoke about ways of which we could control the work stress. So we started creating kind of a, a community of people around the practitioner that actually allowed them to start to address the issues. And so we slowly moved away from any mandatory notification mm. um, requirement and moved towards more of a health-focused um, uh, recovery model, if you
0: like. So, Kay, just to bring it all together, as a treating practitioner... Do you have any advice for other health practitioners in terms of taking your care of yourself and seeking help?
4: To just be able to reflect on your own practice uh, is really important, but to reflect on your own performance and health with somebody who you um, uh, respect and who knows you but is not a friend—you know, who's somebody who can actually um, speak honestly. To you about what they're hearing and reflect that back. Um, to find that sort of person is well worth looking. Um, yep. And maybe sometimes it won't be from your own profession, it might be from another profession. Um, but those sort of people are around, and it's really important that if you feel that you're isolated, that you are at risk of potentially falling below the standard of practice that you would prefer to be adhering to, that you actually reach out at an early stage because we can't afford to lose good health practitioners. Yeah. Um, so it's I think it's important to sort of look around for somebody who can give that mentoring and support. Then if you need treatment and other things, that's a different thing. But in the first instance, is to have a conversation with somebody who can say, you know what, that isn't actually sounding very good. Yeah. We need to do something about that.
0: Thank you very much for joining us, Kay, for the insightful uh, discussion from the perspective of a trading psychologist. Um, Thank you. Thank you. So thanks for joining us
1: this week on Taking Care. I hope you've enjoyed those conversations about mandatory notifications. If you have any feedback or questions, you can email us at communications at opera.gov.au. Thank you.